Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and some of the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta and I'm your podcast host. And today we're going to talk about oils and oils that come from plants. When we start thinking about renewable sources for oils for different purposes, whether they're food or fuels, we can think about plants and the way that plants can harness sunshine to, to fix carbon dioxide into larger structures that serve as either food or fuel-based oils. What's nice about this is that uh, plants do have a rather large portfolio of oils they already produce. However, they're not always exactly suited for human need. And so there are some little metabolic changes or little tweaks that can be done to make them proper for what we're looking for. And so today we're speaking to an expert in that tweaking process. We're speaking with Dr. Surinder Singh. He's the group leader in oil engineering at CSIRO, which is the National Research Laboratory in Australia, um, speaking from Canberra, Australia. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Singh. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's really nice to talk to you again. I enjoyed my visit with you and your lab group and, uh, I actually got to see some of these oils, you know, in person, which was really great. But let's start out with a couple concepts. Um, why does it make more sense to use plants as a source for oil production? So uh, you'll be familiar with the, the plants uh, are generally, you know, uh, re- can produce renewable uh, products. Uh, we rely on plants for our food and also for feeding our livestock. And so plants, uh, you know, use the uh, process of uh, photosynthesis to basically harness uh, uh, sunlight and uh, oxygen from the atmosphere um, to uh, convert uh, or fix uh, what we say carbon. So therefore, uh, plants, you know, make it's a, a, a really uh, workable and renewable platform for the different complex molecules that uh, us humans need. And, and one of the molecules that has come into uh, importance over the last couple decades have been the omega-3 fatty acids. And why are they important for human health? Yes, so yeah, the, the, there has been a you know the growing recognition of the health benefits that uh, the omega three uh, fatty acids provide. So just before you know, I define uh, what the, these health benefits can be. I would just like to introduce briefly that there are two types of omega three fatty acids. One is called the short chain omega-3 fatty acids. 
So these short chain fatty acids are generally found in every plant. Uh, and um, then there's the long chain omega-3 fatty acids. These are uh, generally found in marine organisms. Uh, and people would be very familiar with um, fish and the fish oils, algae and algal oils. So these long chain omega-3 fatty acids are found in these uh, marine organisms. And uh, the, the interest in, um, uh, from the health perspective is definitely centered around these long chain omega-3 fatty acids, which uh, the best representatives of these long chain fatty acids are known as, uh, as EPA and DHA. I mean, I can spell out what these uh, abbreviations stand for, but I think in the community out there or in the population, I think that people who are familiar with, um, you know, omega-3s will definitely also be familiar with uh, EPA and DHA. So so what are the benefits um, that are associated with taking the required dose of uh, these uh, long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, i.e. EPA and DHA? Well, the, the key benefit, um, uh, for example, uh, is around um, good cardiovascular health. So if you um, take adequate levels of these fatty acids, um, then you know you have, much, have a much better uh, cardiovascular health in terms of uh, uh, lower blood fats and also having um, a better profile of uh, your circulating cholesterol. And also there's evidence that um, DHA in particular also gives you some protection against sudden cardiac arrest. We don't know the exact mechanism, but there is trials been done which show that there is some benefit uh, around that. And then the other big area of uh, benefit that, for example, DHA provides is around mental well-being. And by that, I mean uh, cognition, um, memory, and uh, mood. So all of these uh, characteristics are positively uh, affected by having adequate levels of DHA in your diet. And it's not surprising because if you look at the chemical composition of our brain, and this is a fact that um, um, if you look at what are the different facts that are present in the brain, almost 40% of the facts in the brain comprise of D DHA. So it's you know, very important for the uh, well and the good functioning of our brains. So cardiac uh, is good for your heart, good for your brain. And then also there is now increasing evidence that uh, adequate intakes of EPA and DHA also help in joint mobility because both of these fatty acids are anti-inflammatory. So they suppress the inflammation response and therefore help in joint mobility. So I think there, there are many other benefits as well, but for that, the evidence is 
uh, merging. But these are the three main uh, areas that are touched on uh, the key benefits of these fatty, uh, long chain omega three fatty acids. Well, if they're so valuable, why don't we just uh, get those from fish? Yes, uh, and and you know we have been doing that. So um, fish, um, you know, is very popular uh, as a food. People also um, get these uh, uh, EPA and DHA in the forms of uh, supplements or capsules. So uh, the issue that's emerged um, in the last, let's say, 20 years is people have been um, reporting that the amount of fish that's available in the oceans is slowly declining. Now, this... There are many factors that play into the, this uh, steady decline. Uh, one of them, for example, being is the um, very you know efficient way in which people can you know send out these um, uh, big trawlers that can actually fish um, large amounts of fish. However, you know many governments um, around the world have recognized this and they have put quotas. Um, uh, strict quotas around the amount of fish that these trawlers can take. What's happened also is the impact of uh, climate change, um, where they, uh, you know, what's been happening globally in terms of the steady rise in the temperature uh, and also the, the increase in the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. What happens is that this increased atmospheric carbon dioxide also dissolves in the oceans. And so generally and slowly, the pH uh, of the sea water is increasing, making it more acidic. And so all of these climate change factors also is negatively impacting on the number of fish that we have in the ocean. And so it's very um, clear. I mean, there's a lot of data out there to show is that the demand for fish and by that also the omega-3 fatty acids uh, is not being adequately met by the uh, supply. And that's why I think there is this issue of uh, supply and demand in the omega-3 fatty acids. Okay, so if we switch from fish, which make the long chain, to the plants that make the short chain, what kind of genetic engineering tricks do you need to do to increase the chain length in the plant? Okay, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so when I said that, you know, fish are the good source of the, the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, um, what, you know, in, in reality, uh, fish actually... Uh, uh, don't make these long-chain fatty acids themselves. So what happens in the marine environment is that the primary producers of these long-chain omega-3 fatty acids are the algae. So these are the little plankton, the microalgae. They are the primary producers of uh, the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. And then what happens is that the, the algae get eaten by the little fish and then the little fish get eaten by the bigger fish and so on. These omega-3 fatty acids then flow through the food chain. So um, what 
well, we uh, have done is that we, we, we've actually studied how the algae make these long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, and we know the entire pathway. And so there's a number of enzymes that are involved in converting the short-chain omega-3 fatty acid into the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. All of these enzymes are present in the algae. And so, you know, the possibility arose is, is that uh, we could actually take the genes, genes from the algae, which, by the way, is uh, our lower types or lower forms of uh, our, our crop plants that we cultivate. So we take these uh, genes for the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids from the algae, and by using biotechnology, we can transfer them into, let's say, an oilseed crop. And by doing this process, we can then equip an oilseed crop to start making these long-chain omega-3 fatty acids. Okay, so how does uh, is there a particular crop that you've worked with, and uh, does it work? Yes. Okay. So what we when we dis- decided to embark down this path, we we looked to see what would be the best oilseed crop, and we settled on. Uh, a crop known as canola. Its uh, Latin name is Brassica napus. And uh, canola is the um, second most widely cultivated oilseed crop in the world. The first one being soybean, and the second is canola. And there's almost 10 million hectares of canola cultivated around the world. So this is the crop that we worked with and like I mentioned that we isolated the uh, uh, long-chain omega-3 fatty acid genes from the algae and we transferred them into canola and um, after about uh, almost uh, 12 to I think yeah it was about 12 years of uh, hard work we managed to actually um, these canola plants uh, to make um, uh, oil in the seed, which is exactly the same as what's found in the fish. So it's been very successful. <laughs> wow, that's really great. So is this crop something that's currently being deregulated or is it available to farmers? Yes. So uh, what ha- happens is that because this is a genetically modified crop, um, it has to actually be uh, deregulated by the regulators that uh, operate in different countries. So in 2018, uh, we filed um, papers for deregulating this uh, canola crop in Australia, USA, and Canada. I'm very glad to say that we have got approvals for deregulation from the Australian regulators. We also have similar approval from USDA in US, and I'm told that uh, we uh, are expecting um, approval from the Food and Drug Authority in the US as well. So to answer your question, the crop has been deregulated in Australia and in USA, which means that uh, um, this will allow you know large-scale commercial production of this crop very shortly. That's really great. Now, does the same oil 
also work for other applications like cooking or you know whatever else you might use uh, canola oil for? Or is it something that someone would cultivate strictly as a dietary supplement? Okay, so the uh, long-chain omega-3 fatty acids are highly uh, desaturated. By that I mean is that it's, it, it's a fatty acid that contains a large number of double bonds. So these types of fatty acids don't like to exposure to heat. So to answer your question, this type of canola oil uh, with these uh, long-chain omega-3 fatty acids will not be a, uh, good for cooking. And, you know, I, I, um, it's common sense that people hardly cook with fish oil uh, because when you expose these uh, oils with high levels of omega-3, long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, they basically break down and uh, uh, you get uh, rancidity or, you know, bad flavors. So where the uh, long-chain omega-3 canola oil will be used, primarily it'll find use in aquaculture or fish farming. So uh, fish farming, uh, because of the decline in um, fish, let's say salmon, in the oceans, um, aquaculture or fish farm uh, or salmon farming, you know, has really taken off. And uh, there's these large operations in Norway, in Chile, and also down in Australia that actually produce um, salmon. And I would, you know, it's you can be assured that, you know, when you go into your supermarket and buy some salmon, um, almost certainly this, this salmon has come from a salmon farm. So now in salmon farms, um, salmon have to be fed fish oil because these fish oils are necessary for the salmon to develop uh, and grow normally. So at the moment, these fish oils are extracted from pilchards and anchovies that are fished out of the ocean. And um, just uh, for example, um, uh, globally, uh, one million tons of fish oil is consumed every year. And out of that one million ton, almost 600 to 700,000 tons is used in aquaculture. So 60 to 70% of you know, the oil that's extracted from um, uh, ocean caught fish is being consumed by aquaculture. The good news is that our uh, canola oil that has these um, long-chain omega-3 fatty acids can totally replace the fish oil in aquaculture settings. Now that's going to be a great boon because, you know, um, the, the, the fish farms can basically, you know, have access to our canola oil and that will give a, a lot of relief to the uh, wild fish in the ocean to sustain these um, aquaculture operations. So that's one major use of the canola oil that we've developed. And also um, we are doing trials to basically show that you can use this canola oil in supplements. Uh, so, you know, where you, people who consume fish oil supplements can start consuming our um, canola oil supplements and have the same benefits. And I guess there is an added benefit that this type of canola oil can be classified to be vegan. If you like, I mean, if you, uh, you know, accept the genetic modification side of things, the oil is 
vegan. So people who don't like to consume fish oil, or fish oil capsules or supplements because they come from animals um, can have the benefit of consuming these omega-3 fatty acids from the canola oil. And lastly, I would finish up to say that where the canola oil can be used is in pharmaceutical applications. So what we've shown is that, you know, we can basically enrich the canola oil and enrich it either for EPA or for DHA. And when you enrich it to about 90% purity, this becomes a pharmaceutical, uh, uh, you know, product. And uh, uh, these pharmaceutical, there are many drugs that are being developed, especially based on EPA. So I would envision that the canola oil can be a feedstock for these pharmaceuticals as well. No, very good. Well, we're speaking with Dr. Surinder Singh. He's a group leader in oil engineering at CSIRO, which is the Australian National Research Laboratory in Canberra, Australia. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. The Talking Biotech Podcast is in a new growth phase. And that's thanks to you, the loyal listener. We appreciate that loyalty in your role in the word-of-mouth advertising, the graffiti tagging, and other vandalism you do to promote this podcast. The spray-painted Talking Biotech Podcast rules on the 405 in LA gets about 100,000 views a day, so thanks for that. But more importantly... Remember that this series is a collection of experts talking about the subjects of their expertise. In the swirling snot cloud of misinformation on the internet, it's a great way to review and reference the nuances of issues like glyphosate and how experts assess health and environmental risk. What's up with new technologies reaching the field or your physician's office? Where did our crops and animal friends come from in time and space? These are just some of the questions we've covered, and the archive is certainly worth a revisit. And thank you for your support on Patreon. That support will directly translate into improving this podcast and expanding the media empire we create. And now, back to the podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Surinder Singh. He's the group leader in oil engineering at CSIRO, which is the Australian National Research Laboratories. And that's in Canberra, Australia. You know, it's, I've seen Canberra on TV lately. Um, you know, unfortunately, um, a lot of smoke there. Is, uh, is the city close to the fires? Yes, actually, as we are speaking, today is a... Uh, day of uh, great danger for Canberra because we have fire lapping at our outskirts and it's, go it's going to be a very hot day and you know it's early in the morning uh, and it's be already you know um, around uh, 35 degrees Celsius so um, yeah so we do have a fire emergency and yeah the smoke um, you know for the last uh, month or so Canberra has been uh, basically uh, covered with uh, smoke that's blown in from the bushfires that are, you know, uh, surrounding Canberra. So, yeah, it, it's uh, tough times here at the moment. 
Yeah, I'm very sorry to see that because it was such a beautiful city and uh, a really unique city. And just in uh, having a short time there, I really uh, fell in love with it. I thought it was a really great place. And But um, does it look like things will start to get a little better? I hope so. I mean, we are all praying for rain because, you know, we, we are, have been in a situation of drought, which makes all the trees and the bush, as we call it here, very, very dry. And so I think the only solution now is rain. So we do need rain because we are due for it because this is supposed to be the time in February and March and April is when the rains come. And if the rains come, then I think we'll be out. We will be okay. Well, best to everybody there, you know, but we're, you know, thinking of you all the time and let's um, go back to talking about plant oils and the other major type of oils that we think of are the oleic oils. And why are these important? Okay, so uh, I think people might be familiar with the term oleochemicals. So that term derives from the wide use of one particular fatty acid known as oleic acid. So just uh, to define it, what is oleic acid? So oleic acid is uh, a fatty acid that has 18 carbons in it, but it has only a single double bond. So that actually makes this fatty acid highly desirable for many reasons. Firstly, um, it's a unsaturated fatty acid and people know that unsaturated fatty acids are good for your health. So uh, oleic acid is one of those acids that, uh, you know, is very neutral in terms of, uh, uh, you know, is, if, 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 you, if you actually consume a lot of oils that are rich in oleic acid, then they are really healthy for you. And one example people familiar with would be olive oil. So olive oil is pretty high in oleic acid and you know, it's known as a healthy oil for um, you know eating uh, in breads and dips and uh, also in cooking. The, the reason why um, uh, oleic acid is also desirable from an industrial point of view is that it's highly stable. So oils that are very rich in oleic acid are highly stable at high temperatures. You can expose them to uh, you know, 100 degrees Celsius for many hours and the oil doesn't break down, which then actually makes this oil quite desirable for deep frying. You know, so you, you, when you actually go through this uh, process of deep frying, um, you can uh, have the oil break down and impart off flavors. However, oils that are rich in oleic acid do not impart this off flavors. Now the fact that um, uh, the, uh, the the fact that these high oleic acid oils uh, are very stable at high temperatures also make them very desirable from an industrial point of view. For example, uh, oils that are rich uh, in oleic acid can be used as lubricants, and, and by this I mean lubricants that. Uh, are used uh, in cars and in, as gear oil, which you know have to be uh, exposed to high temperatures. It can be used as a dielectric fluid in transformers for cooling. 
and uh, being a plant oil um, the advantage is that if there is some mishap uh, in a transformer i.e. the transformer exploding then there is less chances of contamination because the oil is totally biodegradable and the last um, point i would like to make in terms of the industrial use is that so oleic acid uh, can be actually broken up into shorter to two shorter c9 because it's got 18 carbon so if you cleave it in the middle where the double bond is you break it into c9 components and these c9 components are the feedstock for nylons for example so so there's a lot of interest in these oleic acid and in oils that have very high levels of oleic acid yeah and if i can step back just really quickly for the listener is that those of you who are not big into organic chemistry if you picture a chain of carbons which means you know the carbon atoms you know one after another in a long linear chain and then they're uh, held together by bonds and it's the nature of the bonds that hold them together that dictates the solubility and the performance properties of different fatty acids it's double bonds all the way across except in the one position which allow this to have a unique architecture and kind of bends uh, as a molecule and that's what gives it its properties at least part of its properties so this is a a unique kind of fatty acid plants carry this though don't plants make a lot of oleic acid to begin with and and if so then you know why do we need to make more yes so that's a good question plants uh, do make uh, this oleic acid like i mentioned uh, olive oil and um, there are some sunflower oils that have you know reasonably high levels of oleic acid however you know the highest uh, oleic uh, uh, acid level in oils that occur naturally is around 70 to 75% um in in the plant oil uh, now that's a, that there's a reasonably high level but it, it you know it the applications that i was mentioning um uh demand that we have something in the order of 93 to 95% like acid so in 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 um, other words have a plant oil that basically has nothing else in it other than oleic acid so that makes it almost a pure source of oleic acid now such type of oils do not exist in nature and that's why you know we worked Uh, in actually creating an oil that has you know upwards of 90% oleic acid in its oil and, and then that makes it really attractive for multiple applications i see so what kind of plants did you engineer and how did you do it okay so what we did was we in this case we worked with uh, a plant or oil seed crop rather um it's uh, called saf flower saf flower um is already a uh, oil seed crop and you know it's cropped uh, in many many parts of the world it's a close relative of sunflower the reason we chose to work in safflower is because you know the the oil that we have produced uh, in safflower i think it'll find more use as an industrial um, oil and so we wanted to use Uh, a crop that at the moment is not 
used that much for uh, uh, for food purposes because we didn't want to steal um, oil that's going into the food. So we, that's why we focused on safflower. And um, basically what we did was that we used a approach or technology that's known as RNA interference. By that, I mean is, is that you can actually selectively switch off uh, particular genes. And so what we did was basically uh, used RNA interference in safflower to switch off genes that convert oleic acid to linoleic acid. So in plants, what generally happens is that you make fatty acid with the first double bond, which is oleic acid. Then subsequently, there are other uh, enzymes that come in and insert the second double bond and the third double bond and so on. So basically, we stopped any downstream desaturation of oleic acid. And just by doing that, we um, uh, created uh, oil in safflower that has 93% of its fatty acid is now oleic acid. Okay, but is this product also, and is this one you're also going through deregulation or is this something that's already available? Yes, yeah, so so again, um, you know, it was quite... Um, you know, fortuitous for us is that 2018 has been a signal year for us because we had deregulation for the omega-3 canola, as I mentioned, and we also um, got the safflower, high-olike safflower deregulated in Australia. So the company that we are working with that is going to commercialize the high-olike safflower wants to focus the production in Australia to begin with. So therefore, they were interested in having this deregulated in Australia. So it did get deregulated in 2018. And then, you know, the company is on track to basically start commercial production. However, you know, as I mentioned that, you know, we've been in um, this uh, very bad drought, (laughs) which has actually limited uh, how much of this crop could be grown in the last year or so. However, you know, if, if the drought breaks, the company is poised to actually start large-scale commercial production of this particular crop. Okay, now that sounds really great. It's, um, it's, it's kind of exciting because we never really hear about safflower, but that's something that now there's transgenic safflower that's making a, a, a useful oil. Yeah. The other thing you are working on is something I was very unfamiliar with, and this is how you are basically enabling plants to make fuel oil and uh, leaf oil, um, you know, and, and so tell me a little bit about leaf oil and what it's used for. Sure. So, you know, I think that um, one thing is, uh, you know, quite clear when people, when we look at the demand for plant oils, you know, has been basically increasing year on year. And when we look forward to 2030, 2050, it's projected that we would have to basically double the amount of plant oils that we are producing as of today. And that's an immense challenge because, you know, where is this capacity of additional production come from? Uh, come from? Because, uh, you know, at the moment we have about five or six oilseed crops, but also we have the oil palm production that, you know, contributes quite heavily to plant oils. 
and um, the number of arable acres that are available to expand the production of plant oils is uh, diminishing because you know mostly people either have maxed out the amount of crops they can plant and then there are constraints in um, the amount of water that's available and with regards to oil palm already there is a lot of concern where people have been clearing native forests to put in oil palm plantations so there's a you know mo- many countries have actually prohibited further expansion of oil palm plantations so all of this actually you know puts up a challenge how will the additional plant oil production uh, demand be met so plant oils as i mentioned either come from uh, the oil seed crops or it comes from oil palm where it's produced in the mesocarp so what we actually um, uh, have done is that we've actually gone did a very deep dive into how you know an oil seed let's say canola is able to make almost 50% of uh, oil by seed weight so that so the seed in canola is very efficient in you know uh accumulating oil up to 50% of uh its dry weight and by unraveling the machinery of the seed we are able to identify what are the key genes that are needed to uh equip uh, a plant um, tissue to accumulate oil and so what we did then is that we basically transferred these genes into a, a, a leaf and the stem of a plant and when we did that to our daily delight is that we saw that the leaf and the stem start to make similar amounts of oil as the seed is making so we have uh, initially worked with the tobacco as our model plant and people will be familiar with the very large leaves that are present in tobacco and we have put when we put these genes into tobacco we have tobacco plants that have um, almost 35 to 40% of this leaf is oil by dry weight so much so <laughs> that we could just put these dried tobacco leaves through an oil press and you know you can squeeze out the oil just like you do in a seed so this is i think transformative technology i believe in how we can really expand production of plant oils by producing them in the leaves and in stems and if you can envision that if now we take the technology that we've d- proven in tobacco and put this into let's say miscanthus or uh, something like a uh, switchgrass or even uh, sorghum so these are all c4 plants with very high biomass that means on on a you know area basis uh, they produce large amounts of biomass which is totally comprised of either leaves or stems and so if these plants also have oils in their oil in their biomass we can you know dramatically increase the amount of plant oil production on a per hectare basis that's really exciting because i you know you can think of of things like miscanthus um switchgrass these are extremely um, fast-growing grasses um, that 
by virtue of their type of photosynthesis would allow them to essentially make large amounts of oil. Um, that, that could be a real game changer. And so it's an excellent way to think about uh, another way to be fixing carbon from the atmosphere into something that people can use. That, that's really great. What, what, what's the ultimate application of those oils? Is it going to be more industrial or is that more food type oils? So, so, so that's the beauty of this technology is that, you know, the, the basically, you know, as the saying goes, the world is our oyster in this regard because uh, the, the, the plant uh, cells or the plants uh, are quite plastic in terms of the types of oil they can make. So, you know, we can make oils in the leaves and stem that could be placed for food purposes that could be used for feeding animals, but also uh, the, we can have other types of oils that can go into producing green biodiesel for fuel. And lastly, the most exciting one that we're working on is jet fuel. So you can envision that, you know, you could have um, uh, commercial jetliners powered by uh, jet fuel that's produced from its or switchgrass or even sugar. That's really amazing. And, and it's really something whose time has come because you're not only replacing petroleum, you're um, also pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. And even though you're putting it back in when you burn it, it's at least carbon neutral. And uh, we can stop mining carbon out of the earth and putting it into our atmosphere and maybe try to reverse that process just a little bit. Precisely. You hit the nail on the head there. Well, one of the big criticisms we've had here in the States is when farmers were growing corn to make ethanol, uh, people were saying, well, why are you using this space and these resources to make fuel when you could be making food? And how does that translate to oils when you're doing this in, say, something like switchgrass or miscanthus? Yes, yeah, so, so that's a very good question. And, you know, this, uh, uh, you know we, we have given this a lot of thought. And what we would like to do, we, we, we haven't achieved this yet, but what we would like to do, for example, is that let's take the, take the example of corn. Now, corn is also a C4 crop plant. By, by that, I mean that it's highly efficient in its photosynthesis and also has a very high biomass. Now, in corn, uh, you know, you harvest the cob and, you know, you get your, uh, you know, products that you uh, make from the cob. Uh, but also there is a large amount of stover that means whatever else that's left over that comprises of leaf and stem. Now, that stover is at the moment, for example, used in silage and uh, as fodder. So what we are experimenting with is that can we actually have a situation where you get the cob and you get your uses from that, but we also put the oil in the stover. By putting the oil in the stover, then you know you get two types of uh, products from the same crop. So this corn will yield the cob as well as the oil in the leaves and stems. So that's the sort of ideal situation we would like to end up as, and then that would actually address some of these issues about, you know, do we steal the land that is used for producing food, uh, for producing um, 
uh, part oils that could actually be used in biofuels and so on. Well, if people want to learn more about what you do and what your laboratory does, is there a good website that you could direct us to? Yeah, so um, you bet. I mean, easiest thing would be just Google my name, Surinder Singh, CSIRO, and if you just Google it, there's a number of websites that uh, uh, that that will come up that you can you know go to. But basically, you can go to the CSIRO website and search for plant oils and you know all the information is there okay and i'll include a link on the uh, website page with this particular episode so dr surinder singh thank you so much for joining me on the podcast it was a pleasure to meet you in person and i've been looking forward to uh, this interview for a long time (laughs) thank you kevin and thank you for listening to another episode of the new and improved Talking Biotech podcast. <laughs> Write reviews on iTunes. Help us out in any way you can by spreading the word to other people. Consider Patreon and maybe making a small donation on a monthly or yearly basis to uh, put a little wind under the wings here. Um, every dollar that's collected is used in the promotion and production of this podcast and other media that I'll be doing. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.